Matthew chapter 7, if you have your Bible. And I'm, I'm <clears throat> let me just say this at the outset. If the Lord is drawing you to himself this morning for salvation, for rededication, for forgiveness of habitual sin in your life, if he's already moved on your heart prior to me beginning to preach this morning, then I want you to make up your mind right now that you're going to respond to his voice before this service is over and do what he asks you to do. If it's come to an altar of repentance, then do that. You can make up your mind right now to do that. In spite of anything that I might say between now and then, you make up your mind now that the Lord, I know the Lord has spoken to me this morning. I've heard his voice. I felt his spirit. I know that I'm being convicted. I know that he's convincing me of some things. I know what I need to do. Make up your mind right now that before the service is through today that you're going to do what he asked you to do. All right? And I promise you, you won't ever regret doing what the Lord has led you to do, whatever that might be. Before I get to the text in, in Matthew chapter 7, let me give you the, just the background behind it so you understand what gener I, I generally know by Monday or Tuesday what I'm going to preach on Sunday. I didn't have a clue this week until Thursday. And then something happened that settled my heart very quickly on what I knew God wanted me to preach today. I, I, do, a, I look, do a little devotion every morning based on our... Based, it's good for me because... The writers of our Sunday school literature pick out a text every day for us to read that connects us back to our Sunday school lesson we study on Sunday morning. It's good for me in that it makes me read the scripture and, have, and formulate a thought about how that applies to, to my life in particular. So after I have my, I, I read the scripture and, and, and ponder it for me and then I share a little devotional thought with you. And this week, one of, the, one of the passages of Scripture that I gave us to read was in 1 John chapter 3. And um, it was actually, I think, the first nine or ten verses of that. Um, but, but one of them that kind of summarizes everything that's said in that text is 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 8. And it says, He that committeth sin, or he that practices habitual sin, the New Living Translation said, keeps on sinning. It shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy the works of the devil in our life. I concluded that devotion with a reference to the verse that I'm going to read to you this morning, and I'm not going to tell you what that verse is yet. Clickbait. But a lady that, that regularly, and, and I, I told her, I tell her all the time, God's given her the ministry of encouragement and the gift of encouragement because she is a big encourager. I see that everywhere, not just in her dialogue with me, but with another people. She doesn't attend church here, but she's a devout follower of Christ. And she commented when I, when I made reference to the verse that we're going to read this morning that that verse was the most frightening verse in the Bible. And, and I, I, I took some me time Thursday and spent the biggest part of the day in the woods getting some tractor therapy and getting ready for hunting season. And I thought about what she said all day. The most frightening verse. Now, that's a mouthful. 
There's a lot of stuff in the Bible. There's a lot of frightening stuff in the Bible. But to say that's the most terrifying, frightening verse in all of God's Word just kind of struck me. And I chewed on that thought all day. And I, and I think she's right. I think it may very well be the most frightening verse in all of God's Word. And, and when we read it, I'm going to see if you can identify it. I'm going to see if you can pick it out of the text. In, in Matthew chapter 7, we have the end of Jesus' first recorded sermon. And it's also the, the longest discourse that we have, the continual discourse, the first and longest sermon that we have that he preached in his ministry. And I, and I can summarize the whole sermon like this. Jesus was teaching his disciples what the essential tenets or characteristics of the, king, of the citizen of heaven's kingdom look like. This is what people look like who are part of the kingdom of God. I mean, you, you can go back and I, you, you read all of it up to this point, and that's what the whole sermon was about. If you are part of my kingdom, this is the way that you live your life. And, 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 and in verse number 12, he summarized everything that he taught in that, in that one verse that we call the golden rule. He summarized everything that he taught about the kingdom in the 12th verse when he said, And whatsoever you will have that men should do to you, whatever you want men to do to you, then do it even to them. And then he connected that back with those two great commandments that in, in all of that, in, in that golden rule, if you keep that golden rule, you'll fulfill the law and the prophets. That's all that God has expected that we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we love our neighbor as ourselves, that we look at people and say, How do you want, how do I want you to treat me? Then that's the way that I need to treat you. And then in verse 13, he begins to close the sermon out. He, he, he begins to, to, um, to bring it to a close in verse 13. And uh, I really just gonna concentrate on one little short section, but I want you to see the whole context of what he's saying. And keep this in mind. He's talking in. He's talking in terms of twos here. That, there, that, there's, that there's two ways that you can go. That, that there are two different kinds of fruits that you can bear. That there are two different foundations that you can build on. And, and, and he closes the sermon out like this. Enter ye in at the straight gate. It's going to be hard for me not to preach as I go, but I don't want to bog down in any of this. Enter ye in at the straight gate. That's the narrow gate. Enter in at the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And listen to what he said. And many there be that go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be. Find it. So you got two gates already, and you got many that are going in one and few going in the other. Then in verse 15, he warns them. He said, Beware of false prophets which come to you looking like sheep in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree 
cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name hath done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now the most terrifying verse in all of God's word that that lady referenced, and that I believe she was right, is the 23rd verse of Matthew chapter 7. When Jesus said, I will profess unto you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So let me just make some observations from the, those three verses right there in that context. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23 is the heart of the message this morning. I want you to see everything that's around him because he's talking about paths. He's talking about gates. He's talking about fruit. He's talking about foundations that we build our life on. But some observations from those few verses. First of all, the context is one of eternal judgment. The context of what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23 is the context of eternal judgment. The picture that Jesus is painting is that there are going to be one day men that are standing literally at the gates of heaven and the entrance to heaven itself is at stake. He said, the question is that there are those that are there that, says, that say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus said they're not getting into the kingdom. In verse 22, he said, there's going to be many that say to me on that day, that day when they're standing before him, looking for access to the kingdom of heaven. So the context is one of eternal judgment. Entrance to the kingdom of heaven is at stake. And guess what? Jesus gets to make the final call about who gets into heaven. We're not left to judge ourselves. It is, it, is, it is not our prerogative to be our own judge when we enter in or don't enter in to the city that was made without hands, that was built by God himself. Jesus gets to be the final judge. And I said that to say this. It is not your estimation of yourself that matters. It is Christ's estimation of you that matters. 
And it's entirely possible, we'll see this in the text in a few minutes, to be completely blinded to who you are. Jesus talked about um, a, a several times in, in, in the book of Revelation, uh, people that were, that were blinded, they thought that they had something that they did not have. I'm getting to the end of my message. But listen to me, it doesn't, we judge ourselves and it is, it is good for us to judge ourselves while we walk through the earth. But when we stand before him in judgment, it is not going to be on the basis of our judgment, but on his judgment. He's, he's the judge. The Bible says the Father hath committed all judgment unto his hands. And listen to me. Um, Jesus has been talking in twos here, so let me talk in twos to you for a minute. Either Jesus is going to be standing for you as your advocate, your defender, or he's going to be standing against you as your prosecutor, as the one that brings charges against you. Every single one of us is going to stand in that place one day, and he is going to give an estimation a true estimation of who we are. The second thing, the second point, I, it, I take it from that first verse, is that there is a charge that is being made by Jesus of a false profession. He said, not everybody that stands before me on that day who says, Lord, Lord, not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, is going to get in. Not everybody that stands before me on that day is making a true profession of who they are. Let me just say it like this. To say is not to be. To say is not to be. Now listen, I can give you a modern illustration of that. There are men today saying they're women. They are not. There are women that are saying they are men. They are not. You can say something and be something that the exact opposite of what you say you are. And that's a cultural identity crisis. But I believe that same blight that is marking our culture is marking our church in a different way. There are a bunch of people that are making a false profession of faith in Jesus as Lord, but they have no fruit in their life that testifies to that reality. Say, preacher, but, 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 what, but what about Romans 10 9? Romans 10 9 says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. What about Romans chapter 10, verse 13? It says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Are you saying that Jesus is implying in this passage of Scripture that your salvation is not based upon your confession, but upon your works? Well, the short answer to that is no. Jesus ain't teaching the works-based salvation. But I want to take just a minute. I'm going to labor on this point and breeze through the last two as quickly as I can. I'm going to labor this for a minute. You need to understand what the Scripture says about what role your works play in your salvation. And I'm going to tell you a good way to, a good way to just consider that is to consider all the places that the Bible talks about final judgment. And I'm going to read to you some. I'm not going to read to you all of them. Literally, I didn't know the list was as long as it is. But I'm going to read you some passages of Scripture that refer to eternal judgment. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. 
This is the role that works play in our final judgment. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. If you look at all of Matthew chapter 25, there are three parables that are laid out in Matthew chapter 25, and all of them have the, the man Jesus distributed talents were given, ten, five, and one. Ten virgins, five were wise, five were foolish, five took extra oil for the lamps, five took no oil and were caught when the bridegroom came, not prepared for him to come. I was sick and in prison, naked. You didn't feed me, you didn't clothe me, you didn't visit me. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And in fact, the end of that chapter says um, that there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you're cast out. Clearly, uh, clearly a warning of hell. All of Matthew chapter 25 is based on what somebody did with what they were given. Romans chapter 2, verse 6 through 9. And if you read the verses that precede this, it talks about the judgment and wrath of God. That people that do not, that do not understand that it's the goodness of God that's trying to lead them to repentance. It's the goodness of God that's trying to spare them of the wrath to come. But Matthew, or Romans chapter 2, verse 6 says that God will render to every man according to his deeds. To them, then you get this, it's broken down into two again. It's broken down into two. Listen. To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. That's the first group. The people who by patiently continuing in doing well for glory, for honor, for immortality. What do they get? Eternal life. But unto them that are contentious. Want to argue against what God said. And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. This is what they get. Indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul that doeth evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Revelation chapter 2, verse 23, written to a church, the Tyre church, who had a woman named Jezebel as a prophetess in the midst of that church that was teaching the people in the church that it was okay to commit sexual immorality. This is the judgment that, that Christ leveled against that church and against her. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and the hearts and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. Jesus said, and behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. So you see in all those verses where eternal judgment is brought into question, 
the Bible makes it clear that men are going to be judged according to their works, according to their deeds. But he is not teaching a works-based salvation. But this is what we got to understand, is that from the beginning of the Scriptures to the end of the Scriptures, Faith and works are not enemies with each other. They walk hand in hand. They're best friends. Whatever a man believes, that's what that man will do. Whatever a man trusts, that's what that man will follow. And so let me just say it to you like this. Good works are the fruit of real faith. James challenged over and over. Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Wilt thou not know, O man, that faith that, w- that has no works is dead? Well, preacher, you, you done got off in heresy now because Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It does say that. And verse 10 says, And we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So grace that saves you because of faith produces in you a work that honors and glorifies the one that saved you. If you truly believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, then the works that you do will prove that. So let me just let me summarize this point like this. I'm going to try to give you a summary of every point so you can follow me along this morning. Saving faith is not just saying faith. Saving faith, and listen, you don't got to take my word for that. Jesus said, not everybody that stands before me and says, Lord, Lord, is going to enter. Didn't he say that? Saying faith is not saving faith. Saving faith is not just saying that you have faith. See, here's the problem. Lord, I'm trying not to chase too many rabbits. We have redefined what faith means. That's the devil's doing. We've changed the meaning of biblical faith. And we got a whole chapter in the Bible devoted to what that looks like. Hebrews chapter 11. That's that's what faith, that's the passage that tells us what faith is and what faith does. In every reference to every Old Testament Example in that passage of scripture says that they believed God and they did this. Noah believed God and he built a boat. Abraham believed God and he left his homeland. Sarah believed God and they had a son. Uh, Abraham believed God could raise Isaac from the dead and he took him out in his own heart and killed him. Read through that whole context and it says that every one of those men that had faith had a work that proved that they believed. Saving faith is not just saying faith, it is an obedient faith. And Jesus made that clear. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father. The outflow of faith 
is obedience. That old hymn we sing, we don't sing it enough. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. What we truly believe changes the way that we behave. The third thing I want you to see in this text is in verse 22 is that the confusion is one of false assurance. Brother Jimmy and I actually had a conversation kind of like this on Wednesday night. And then that passage of scripture popped up on Thursday morning and I spent all day thinking about this. And I think this may be one of the greatest dangers of the visible church in the world today is that of false assurance. These folks thought they were saved. Jesus said, you call me Lord. You said, Lord, Lord, but you're not coming in. Because the one that does the will of my Father is the one that has real faith. And then they, they, this is almost like a protest. This is almost like a defense. Jesus said, many are going to say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. I think some of the translations will, will say that wonderful works is, in your name we've done miracles. They thought they were saved. And, and, and that, that little word, many, is troubling to me. It's not the first time he used it. He used it when he's talking about the straight and the broad. The narrow and the wide, there's many going the broad way and a few going the narrow way. And honestly, we really ought to ask ourselves that question. Everybody. In fact, the Apostle Paul encouraged us to ask the question. Examine yourself and see whether you be in the faith. Examine yourself. Could I be deceived? Could you be deceived? Could we be deceived into thinking we have an assurance that we don't have and listen to me the basis of their false assurance in that particular verse was but, but wait we had some religious experiences we had some spiritual experiences we had uh, we, we prophesied we prophesied we, we spoke we spoke truth we we cast out devils we did exorcisms and and and, and, and miracles were even performed that wasn't enough Let me, let, me, let, me, let me share this with you. Because you, you might say, well, I ain't, you know, I ain't never done any of those things. Satan is a counterfeiter. And he always has been. In the tribulation, he's even going to counterfeit a resurrection. You can read it for yourself. In the tribulation, he's going to call fire down from heaven and kill the men that are standing at the gates of the temple to prophesy about the Lord. Uh, in, 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 in Revelation, there's going to be an image, an idol made of the Antichrist, and Satan's going to cause that idol to speak. And then you say, preacher, is he really going to do that? I don't know if it's going to be real or if it's going to be... Um, a, a counterfeit show, but I'm telling you, people are going to be deceived by it because the Bible tells me they're going to be deceived by it. The devil's been trying to counterfeit Jesus. 
He's, he's counterfeited the Holy Spirit. He's counterfeited the gospel. Paul warned the church at Galatia, you, I, I marvel that you so soon fallen away to another gospel, which is not another gospel. He's counterfeited the gospel over and over. He's counterfeited um, the Messiah. Jesus said a lot of false messiahs are going to rise, and they're going to say, here's Christ, there's Christ. He said, don't believe it. He's going to counterfeit miracles. And listen, this has been done all the way through the Bible. I can give you a bunch of examples. Every time when God was delivering his people from Egypt, now there came a breaking point in that, but you understand that the Egyptians of Pharaoh were mimicking the miracles that Moses, by the hand of God, created. You, you, you remember that? That is a demonic that is a demonic, supernatural, demonic power that did that. Balaam was a false prophet who was running after money for reward. The New Testament tells us that. But do you know that Balaam spoke the truth? He wanted to prophesy against Israel, but God wouldn't let him. And he essentially, Balaam said, listen, I can't curse what God's blessed. I can't bless what God's cursed. It's impossible for me to do that. But what he did do was tempt the nation of Israel to indulge themselves in sexual immorality. And when they did that, they cursed themselves. But Balaam, God used Balaam to speak a true word. But he's still a false prophet. King Saul. Was, the Bible says that the prophets of God were prophesying and King Saul also prophesied with them. King Saul's heart wasn't after God. His heart was after destroying David. Judas Iscariot, when Jesus sent out the 70, well, when he sent out the 12 even, Judas Iscariot, the Bible never says that he was not among those who had the power to do miraculous things. Jesus also said he was the son of perdition. He wasn't saved. Simon the sorcerer in the book of Acts had power to bewitch people and had people in fear because of him. And when he saw people get the Holy Ghost because they were having their hands laid upon them, he went to Paul and some of the disciples and said, let me buy that from you so I can do it too. The Bible's been full of counterfeits. And it is entirely possible for you and I to have a false assurance of salvation based on a personal, religious, or spiritual experience that doesn't line up with the gospel. Now, let me, let me, let me share with you. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 through 15 says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is, a, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. What did Paul say? You better be careful of these false teachers. They're going to look like the real deal. You, you'll think, and, and listen, listen to me, I'm telling you, there are people out there preaching today. You need to be real careful who you listen to. Jesus said, in fact, 
You need to know what their fruits are. Not just what they say. You need to know how they're living. You need to know about their lifestyle. You need to listen. And there's a lot of folks out there. A lot of people out there um, that are preaching and teaching things that are completely and totally out of sync with God's word. But they do a good job at convincing people that they're right. There are churches out now. You can go on the webpage uh, of some of the churches in our very community. And the first statement that they say is essentially, it don't matter. Uh, we, we are a welcoming and affirming church. That's the wordage. We are a welcoming and affirming church. In other words, if you want to be uh, married to a man, a man want to be married to a man, a woman want to be married to a woman, then come on into our church. We'll love you like Jesus loved you. That's a lie from the pit of hell. It is. Jesus loves them, but he calls us out of sin. He came to destroy the works of the devil, not to approve them. Beware of false teachers. And I think that's primarily who Jesus is pointing to. You remember the miracles we did? You remember that, that preaching that we did? You remember the demonic exorcisms that we did? Surely that's, that's enough to get us into the kingdom. But Jesus said no. Now, if Jesus is talking about false teachers, then you need to understand this. There is a danger of us being ignorant of what God said, misunderstanding what God said, which can lead us to have a false assurance of salvation. That makes sense? If you listen to people, there are folks that are completely reinterpreting this book today. And, 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 and they'll pull you along because they'll pretend to have all kind of knowledge in Greek and in Hebrew. And they'll take little bitty words out of their context and tell you that's not what that word meant. There's a danger in us being led astray by false teaching that will give us a false assurance of our salvation. And so I'm going to just nail this down for you this morning. What you've done... And what you've experienced may not necessarily be true evidence of salvation. For instance. But I prayed a prayer. Now listen to me. I ain't got no problem with anybody praying a prayer. I've led a bunch of people into sinner's prayer. And I will readily admit that there is one danger about that whole sinner's prayer business. And that is, it is not in the scripture. And so you can be fooled into believing, I prayed a prayer and that settles it forever. I called him Lord. And that settles it forever. That ain't what Jesus is saying. Not everybody that says to me. Lord, Lord. I signed a card, preacher. I put my name on a card. I don't have a problem with that. But you can't get your assurance from, I prayed a prayer, I signed my name on a card, I joined a church, I felt a feeling. I felt a feeling. Listen, I felt a feeling at a rock and roll concert. When Leonard Skinner sings Freebird, I cry. 
until he gets to the guitar solo, and then I'm up on my feet shouting it out, you know. That ain't spiritual. It ain't. It's emotional. And I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of folks felt feelings. Feelings and faith are not the same thing. Preacher, I saw this miracle. I had this miracle. The devil loves it. He loves. In fact, Jesus said this. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. But there shall no sign be given it except the sign of Jonah. As the son of man, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the son of man will be in the belly of the earth. And Jonah was a sign of the resurrection. That's the only sign Jesus said you need. I rose from the dead. And I'm going to tell you, if if you're putting your faith in in a miracle that you saw in your own life personally that confirmed to you your salvation, that's a dangerous path to take. Because the devil will imitate a miracle to deceive a soul. My cousin Ray is fond of telling the story about going to Camp Mount Bethel, which was the camp the Free Will Baptist used to own. Said they had a, and there was a big rock formation, limestone formation out there by the lake. And, um, and we, would have, we would have bonfires out there. And one night a guy at the bonfire, I wasn't there tonight, Ray did this, but I, but I don't have any doubt that what he said is true. They shared a devotion out there, and it was a, it was an emotionally moving word, probably an accurate word, a true word. Um, I, nothing wrong with the message itself, but at the end, the guy gave an, illust- uh, gave an invitation, and he basically said, listen, if you, wanna, if you want to die and go to heaven and not die and go to hell, then there's some pine cones in this bucket up here. Get one of them pine cones and go throw it in the fire. <laughs> Ray said, man, I don't want to go to hell. I went and got me a pine cone and threw it in the fire. Thank God. That's false assurance. And I don't have any problem with, with the symbols that we, that we take and make it a symbol of salvation. But you've got to be careful with those symbols because they don't equal faith. So here's, the, here, here's what I'm trying to tell you about false assurance. Symbols do not equal assurance. Your assurance has to come from the word of God, not from a symbol. Symbols do not equal substance. Form does not equal faith. Paul warned um, that, that many that were part of the church have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. What power? The power to change us. They've got a form. They've got a religious form, but form does not equal faith. And to assume something is true does not mean that it is. And here's the last point. Actually, I I, I should say the next to the last because I'm going to close with something. But the catastrophe here is of eternal condemnation. Verse 23, that scariest verse in all the Bible said, that they had no relationship with Christ. And listen very carefully. They had a profession. They made a profession. They had an assurance, but it was false. They made a false profession and they had a false assurance, but they had no relationship 
with Christ. I know about Jesus. Jesus said, I don't know you. Now, that's not that he don't know you. The, the word that they use in the, in, the, in the Hebrew vernacular is know in the terms of intimacy. Um, Adam knew his wife and she conceived. And, and listen, this is, a, this is about an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, I did not have that with you. You made a false profession, you had a false assurance, but you had no true, real, intimate relationship with me. Why? He said, because you loved sin. You loved to work lawlessness. You loved to live a licentious, wicked, evil life. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, Paul said, The Lord knoweth them that are his. And let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And I know, I know, I know. I feel it when I'm preaching it too. But preacher, what about grace? I thought we were saved by grace through faith and nothing else. We are. Our problem is that we've redefined faith. And we've redefined grace. And we've made both of them to be things that the Bible says they are not. Paul warned over and over and over. And Paul, listen, Paul is the apostle of grace. Nobody talked more about the grace of God than Paul talked about. In Romans chapter 6, he talked about how grace is so much greater than I sin. And then he asked the question, so should I, con so should I continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, he said. How can we who are dead to sin keep living in it? He warned over and over that people who live sinful lifestyles will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. He's the grace preacher. He's the one that said, For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He's also the one that said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, from the New Living Translation, so I don't have to define all the words for you. Don't you realize that those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or are greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians chapter 6, verses not, or 5, rather, Verses 19 through 21. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, which is abuse of drugs, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Just so you don't think the list is conclusive. Let me tell you again, as I've told you before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world.
here's the best way that I know to conclude that. Cheap grace that gives anybody a license to sin is not the same as the rich grace of God that turns sinners into saints. This ain't no new heresy, folks. Jude said, I wanted to write to you about the common ground of faith that we share. But it's more needful that I write to you now about some men who have crept into your church. Stealthy. You didn't even realize they were there. And they have taken the grace of God and turned it into a wicked license to sin. And listen, he warned in that context, their fate is going to be just like the angels that rebelled. It's going to be just like Balaam. It's going to be just like Sodom and Gomorrah. He called them clouds without water. Trees, dead twice, plucked up by the roots and cast into the sea. They made grace cheap. Read Titus chapter 2. I think it begins around verse 11. The apostle Paul said, For the grace that, appear, that brings salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us. Grace that brings salvation does what? Teaches us. That denying ungodly lust, we should live righteously, soberly in this present world. Grace that changes. It don't just save you. It doesn't just justify you. It changes you from the inside out. Do you know why verse 23, I'm, I'm, I'm done closing. Do you know why verse 23 is so terrifying? Do you know why that verse is so terrifying? You know, we say this sometimes to people, and it's true why we're living in this world. It is true why we're living in this world. There's nobody too far gone to save. Right? We say that. It's true. I don't care what you've done. Listen, Paul was a murderer. You, you be a drug addict. You be a homosexual. You can be guilty of any kind of sin that you want to be guilty of or that you have been guilty of, not that you want to be. It doesn't matter how far away you are from God right now. I love that passage. If you keep reading in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where he says, people who do these things will not inherit in the kingdom of God. He, the very next verse after that, I think it's verse 12, it says this, and such were some of you. But you have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been made pure and holy by the blood of Jesus. It don't matter how far you are right now, but I'm here to tell you what's terrifying about this passage of Scripture is that if that is you standing there on that day, you are too far gone to save. That's it. That's the end of the line. That's where the false profession 
comes to life. That's where the false assurance is destroyed. That's where destiny is sealed. That's where all hope is lost forever. It's sad to me that there are people who think they have something that they don't have. Who have bought the lie of cheap grace. Who have misinterpreted faith. Listen, salvation is a free gift. Amen. It's a free gift. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And there are some people, listen, who get so caught up in the free gift, you can't do nothing. You don't do anything. You don't. Salvation is free. You don't have to earn it. You don't merit it. But there's things that you do because of it. And, and, and it kind of goes like this. Let me just give you an illustration to help you understand. I want to, and I don't play the lottery, but if I did win the lottery, they'd call me and say, Mr. Lord, we got a check for you for a million dollars. I'm going to pick that check up. Thank you, sir. Thank you for the free gift. Although I might have paid a little bit for a lottery ticket. Let's, just, let's wipe out the lottery. Somebody just said, I want to give you a million dollars. If anybody here wants to do that, when the service is over today, I'll be glad to receive that. A thousand or a hundred be fine too. But if you give me a check for a million dollars, it ain't nothing but ink on paper until I take it to the bank and deposit it or cash it. Now, I didn't do nothing. It's a gift. I didn't earn that. I didn't do anything to earn that. You gave it to me, but I got to take it. I got to deposit it. I got to cash it. I got to appropriate that to my life or it's just ink on paper and I can die with a million dollar check in my pocket and still not be a millionaire. You understand that? You give me a trip to an all expense paid vacation. I'm, I'm dropping hands for pastor appreciation day. <laughs> a Montana hunting trip. I was going to say something about the beach. That would be my wife. She'd give her that. Guess what I got to do? I got to make some preparations for that. If I'm going out of this country, I got to have a passport. If I'm flying an airplane, I got to have an airplane ticket. I still got an expense paid vacation, but there are things that I got to do to appropriate the gift, to enjoy the gift. So what do you have to do to, what do you have to, do to appropriate salvation? Number one, I'm going to share the same thing I shared at Sister Meyer's funeral because this is the easiest way I know to put it. Admit that you're a sinner and that you will never, ever, ever, ever measure up to the glory of God. You won't, I won't, none of us will. It don't matter how many sermons I preach. It don't matter how many people I lead to Jesus. It matters, but not in the scheme, not in the scheme of my salvation. It doesn't matter how many good deeds I do. I'm a sinner. I owe the wages of sin, and that is eternal death. I am, I am unworthy of salvation, and I am unable in any way, on, in and of myself, to, to obtain salvation. 
There's none righteous, no, not one. All sin and falling short of the glory of God. And here's the truth of the matter. If God, if God never sought after us, we'd never seek after Him. We wouldn't. Secondly, believe in Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about just a head knowledge of Jesus. Romans 10.10 10 talks about the man believing in the heart under righteousness. And with the mouth, then, confession is made into salvation. Jesus, listen to me. Jesus Christ is God. God walked on the face of the earth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was every bit as much God as if he was never a man. He was every bit of a man as much as if he were never God. He was God manifested in human flesh that took upon himself the sins of the world and was crucified on a cross that did not, should not have belonged to him. He was buried in a borrowed tomb and on the third day by the power of the Holy Spirit he rose again. He was God in human flesh that died in our place and rose again to save us. You need to believe that. He wasn't just a good man who taught good things. And I'm, I hate it. I'm, I'm telling you, the church uh, and at large in, in America today has turned Jesus into a good man that taught good things. He, he was. But that's not all he did. And then the last one may be the most important of all. Confess that Christ is Lord. Now, I've got to say this because we've, 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 oh, I said Lord, Lord. Jesus said just saying Lord, Lord won't get it. When the Bible tells us to confess that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. It literally means that you bow yourself at his feet in surrender, in submission. That's what Lord means. What it literally means is you don't own you anymore. You have been bought with a price. And your responsibility from that day forward is to glorify God in your body and in your spirit because they belong to you. Him. When you confess Jesus as Lord, that ain't just saying something. It is doing, it is laying your life down and saying, it does not belong to me anymore. That's where the fruit is born. That's where the, that's where the transformation in your life takes place. As our musicians come this morning, let me, let me say this. Um, I thought I was going to be shorter winded this morning than I am. Y'all been patient with me the last few weeks. I ain't a high pressure evangelist. I ain't never been and I probably won't ever be because here's what I believe. You can't come unless he's calling you. If you have not felt any conviction of sin, if, if you've not been convinced that Jesus is who he said he is, if, if, if listen, if, if the Lord is not speaking to you this morning, then don't you worry about anything that's going to take place from here on out. I can't, I'm not going to try to manipulate your emotions. I'm, and I ain't, I, listen to me, I ain't faulting other pastors that do this. This ain't the way God's called me to do it. This ain't, it ain't, this ain't me. I don't want to take the job of the Holy Spirit. I ain't going to ask you to close your head 
or close your head. Close your eyes and bow your head and raise your hand. I ain't going to ask you to do any of that because, listen, this is between you and God. And if he ain't dealt with you, don't worry about it. Well, I, I, you better worry about it, but I don't want you to respond because I want you to respond. I want you to respond. Like I said at the beginning of this message, I just want you to be obedient to him. You might just need to check yourself this morning. You, you might just need to come forward and say, Lord, I, I, need, I need assurance of my salvation. Here's what I'll do for assurance. I'll take you to what the book says. In fact, you can read the epistle of 1 John and you can come away from that book either knowing that you're saved or knowing that you're not. John said, I have written these things unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. He's the same one that said, he that keeps living on in sin is a child of the devil, not a child of God. It's a test. It's an examination. We can't take a false profession and a false assurance and stand before God and he's like oh I'm sorry you didn't get it right come on in that ain't how it works we have the word of God to instruct us about what salvation is and about what salvation does I've, I've done my very best to preach that this morning and if the Lord is convicting you of sin if he is convincing you that Christ died in your place this morning, if you're ready to be converted, if you're ready to lay down, and listen, I think this is where we're missing it in gospel invitations today. When I laid my, I used to think people get saved different than I did. I don't now, I just don't believe I got saved. When I knelt before the Lord that night and, and, and knew in my heart that that was the last time he'd ever called me, I just knew it. He'd called me over and over and over. I can't tell you the number of times I have white-knuckled a church pew under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and, and left that church house and done ungodly things to get away from the conviction. But I knew that night in the privacy of my own home that the Holy Spirit was saying, you've made a wreck out of your life and you will never straighten it out on your own and you'll lose your family, you'll lose your marriage, you'll lose your life if you don't turn it over to me. And I'm here to tell you, when I bowed in His presence that night, I said, Lord, I, I don't have anything to offer you but what I've got up here and I lay it down at your feet. And I'm telling you, He changed me from the inside out. And I ain't never been the same and I ain't never got over it and I won't never get over it. If God's dealing with you that way this morning, don't put it off. I've seen people walk out of that pew, never, walk out of that door, never to come back in it again. I begged a man on his deathbed to pray the sinner's prayer. He said, the dying words to me. I've never asked God for anything, and I'm not about to ask him now. You preach that funeral. Preach that funeral. I did. I had to. I had no peace whatsoever. Have you been saved this morning? Have you, have you been truly born again? Listen to me. The Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ can't live in you and you not know it. I ain't sinless. I'm not here standing. I'm, I'm telling you this morning, when I sin, I'm miserable. When I fail, I know that I fail. I don't take pleasure in it. I hate it. all in your hands and it always has been just stand Father I pray that you would speak to hearts this morning there's somebody here there's somebody here that needs to be saved
I pray I've not muddied the water. I've tried to make it as simple as I know how. I don't want anybody under the sound of my voice to be trusting in a false profession. I don't want anybody under the sound of my voice to have a false assurance of salvation. I want them to know that they know that they know that they have eternal life. I don't have any doubts about that. I don't have any doubts. I am completely secure because I know what Jesus has done for me. I know what he's doing in me every day of my life. prayers that every person in this room this morning can say the same thing. They know you. Not just know of you, they know you. 